The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Do you ever have experiences that are what they are, but they're little graces too? That happened to me about eight weeks ago. My first invitation to an in person event since the start of the pandemic. It was a book launch for Hollywood to the Himalayas, a memoir by an American woman turned Swami in India. And at this event, she would be interviewed by Deepak Chopra. My husband said, you better get a new dress. So I did. He walked me there and we arrived early. So when we saw a beautiful woman in traditional monastic Indian attire walking by, we introduced ourselves because we knew she was the author. But instead of simply a book event, I was in for a genuine spiritual experience. I hope you have one too. Hi everybody, I'm Victoria Moran, your host of the Main Street Vegan Program. We are the spiritual and spirited vegan podcast coming to you from Unity Online Radio. And I am so, so excited to get to share with you a little bit of the experience that I had when I met our wonderful guest in person, and now she's going to be with us here for a whole luxurious hour. She is Hollywood-raised and Stanford University-educated Sadhvi Bhagavati Saraswati, who visited India to experience the food, but she found, in addition, spiritual food, prasad. She met her spiritual teacher and committed to a life of service. That was 25 years ago, and she is now a renowned spiritual leader, sharing the stage with, as you know, Deepak Chopra, the Dalai Lama, and others. But in her view, nobody is 
elevated beyond anybody else. That makes her an inspiration to devotees all over the world. Sadvi explains her personal road from darkness and pain to freedom and peace in her brand new memoir, Hollywood to the Himalayas, a journey of healing and transformation. Welcome all the way from Rishikesh, India, Sadvi. Oh, thank you, Victoria. It's so wonderful to be together. And I remember very vividly our beautiful meeting on the streets of New York City. And I'm so, so glad that you were able to be there with us at the very special event with Deepak Chopra. It was wonderful. And it was so much more than I expected. Because I go to a lot of events recently, of course, they've been on Zoom, where people are very dedicated, very smart. They get up every day and they meditate and then they meditate again in the afternoon and they're on the path, but they're kind of on the path the way I'm on the path. They're trudging. And that night meeting you, it was very clear that you've gone beyond trudging and you have an amazing spiritual teacher who who is an uplift. And I think this whole idea of, of being in the presence of someone whose energy can raise other people up, it's a little bit new and acultural. And I feel like that's something that um, you can do for us in this conversation. So start a little bit at the beginning, if you would, the Hollywood part before you got to the Himalayas. Sure. Well, I, I was raised in a very, very traditional in many ways, Los Angeles, upper class, Jewish, privileged, beautiful family um, with lots of opportunity. As you mentioned, I had a Stanford education. And it really was on so many levels, a just a, a beautiful, beautiful upbringing in a way where I was given everything that one would say, oh, you need this to be happy by Hollywood culture. In order to be happy or a success, one needs to look the right way, own the right things, have the right opportunity, vacation at the right resorts, get invited to the right parties, know the right people, etc. And I had all of that. I also, though, had a lot of struggles. And some of them were your really normal struggles of just being a a young person in a world and in a culture that, unlike India, I mean, I think it's a challenge to be young anywhere, but especially in a culture where we're not really given a sense of grounding in a perfection of who we are, but rather we are given much more a sense that we are what we do, we are what we achieve, we are our grades on exams, we are 
the clothes we're wearing. We are the size and shape of our body. We are the color of our skin. We are our bank account. We are all of these things. And that creates a lot of struggle. It creates a lot of suffering. It creates a lot of anxiety. So I had all of what you could call the run-of-the-mill standard Western culture upbringing difficulties. But I also had a lot of personal struggles and trauma. I had gone through a lot of difficulties in early childhood. I had been severely abused in very early childhood. And that led me as I entered my adolescence and early 20s to look for ways to ease that pain. And people turn to so many different things, typically alcohol, drugs, food, sex, gambling, etc. And in my case, I had become very, very severely bulimic and was in and out of hospitals and really at a point where doctors weren't sure that I was actually going to stay alive. And by the time I was 25, which was how old I was when I went to India, I had done a lot of work because obviously when you've got a quite literally life-threatening eating disorder as an adolescent, naturally there's a lot of work that you get thrust into, a lot of therapy, a lot of that type of work. And I had done that for years and learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about the illness, and yet it didn't stop. It didn't change how I how I felt deep inside. It changed some of the behaviors. So I was able to what I refer to as manage it, meaning I was able most of the time to not throw up. I was able most of the time to not be in the throes of great pain, but I wasn't free. I wasn't living in any kind of state of awakening or joy or bliss or peace or presence. I always felt like there was something kind of inherently wrong with me, that I wasn't, wasn't quite good enough or right enough. And of course, that led to a lot of overachievement in a lot of other areas. But I thought this was what life was. There was no one in my life who had ever said, oh, by the way, there's this thing called spirituality and it actually offers you freedom and it's available for you. You are not disqualified from it. There are no prerequisites. There is no discrimination and it's available for you. I had no idea. And so I end up in India at the age of 25 with a backpack because I was married to someone who was on a spiritual path and he wanted to go to India. And I knew nothing about India. The only thing I knew was I was an avid vegetarian, a very strict vegetarian. I was vegan. 
and used to have lots of fights with waiters in both my native tongue of English, as well as languages I barely spoke in Europe and South America, about things like the broth in their vegetable soup or what they boiled their rice in, which I learned in some places in South America is actually chicken broth, that the, the seasoning on the rice is actually not some kind of salt and chili mixture, but it's actually chicken broth that they cook the rice in. So I would have these conversations that were very, very stressful, as you, as you probably can understand, with these waiters to make sure that the food I was going to get was pure vegan. And so when he said India, I thought, well, at least in India, they know what vegetarian means. Nobody's going to serve me something that's got eggs in it or fish in it. I mean, in Europe, you order a salad and it comes with eggs on it or tuna fish on it. And I knew that in India, they really got it. And in India, vegetarian as it is means no eggs. And so then it's just a matter of the dairy, which was easy. So I said, okay. And we arrive in India in, it was September, 1996, just, just over 25 years ago. And I had a 500 page-ish Lonely Planet guidebook. And I opened it and said, Rishikesh. It was the first place we went. And standing there on the banks of the sacred Ganga River, which by the way, I didn't know was sacred at the time. I had no idea that this river was the mother goddess. But I was a nature person. I was a mountains person, a trekking person, a backpacking person, a lie in the dirt beneath the trees person, hug the trees person. So for me, rivers and mountains were exactly the right place to go. So we get to Rishikesh. It was easy. It's not too far from Delhi, just far enough to be away from the city. And I stand on the banks of the river. And I had this extraordinary experience of being in the presence of the divine. And it's an experience that 25 years later, still I cannot wrap words around, but it was the experience of being literally in the presence of God, who was not someone I had had any kind of relationship with before or any kind of experience with before. But there it was suddenly, standing on the banks of this river, worshiped as the mother goddess, and I, I could see the presence of the divine. I could feel the presence of the divine. And I could feel it inside myself as well. And I knew that I was part of this divine creation. And that I was full and whole and complete and divine. And that there was no separation between me and this amazing universe. And suddenly, suddenly who I was made sense. Suddenly the universe made sense. Suddenly my place in the universe made sense. 
And that was the beginning of the last 25 years. It, it knocked me to the ground. I was sobbing. And for days, all I could say was, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. Oh, my God, it's so beautiful. Oh, man, I was, I was rendered nonverbal pretty much. And I could pretty much just say, oh, my God, it's so beautiful and cry. And then over the next seven or 10 days, with my heart just blasted open, my mind blasted open, my whole life blasted open, I was this, this very ready sponge, you could say, for the working of, of the divine. And that came in the form of hearing a voice as I walked through Paramarth Nikathan, which is the ashram I now live in, that told me you must stay here. It came in the form of having my feet literally glued to the ground of this ashram when I tried to walk out of it. It came in the form of having the courage to stand in this river and actually offer the pain and the anger and the whole identification with that into the river so that I could be free. So yeah, it's been, it's been a really extraordinary, extraordinary gift and an extraordinary healing on every level, an extraordinary transformation. And it's been such a blessing to be able to to share through the book what I've experienced, because not everyone can go from Hollywood to the Himalayas, literally, physically. First of all, most people aren't starting in Hollywood anyway. But regardless of where they're starting, not that many people can come for more than you know a short period of time, if at all. And yet, the experiences that I've had and the lessons that I've learned are those that apply to all. I mean, for me, yes, I needed to have them in this place. That was what, what we call my dharma, or you could say destiny or purpose. But the teachings and the experiences and the lessons apply, regardless of what your dharma is, whether it's to be a monastic or not to be a monastic, to live in India, to not live in India regardless of what your dharma or life purpose is. Those lessons that I learned and the experiences that I had of being able to heal from the pain, from the anger, from the identification, from the eating disorder, from the addiction, from being so stuck, those are available to everyone. And it's been really, really, really exciting and such a blessing to be able to, to share it with people and to share it really openly and honestly. I mean, these are not the things that spiritual teachers talk about. And for me, it's been a really great blessing to be able to do that and to create a space of openness, of honesty, of vulnerability that's actually strength, not weakness. And that's something to not be ashamed of. 
but actually something to embrace as the very human aspect of our spiritual experience. And that through that, it creates space, I hope, for others to also be honest with their own human experience. Because if we're not open about it and we don't look at it, it can never be healed. You know, it's like if you get a, if you get a cut and you stick a Band-Aid on it and you never take that Band-Aid off, it isn't going to heal. Contrary to the, the Band-Aid commercials that you stick it on and you pull it off and miraculously it's gone, we know that in the very beginning, yeah, you've got a gaping wound. Keep it covered so that it doesn't get infected. But once that initial stage of healing, which, yeah, it happens in a, in a container, once that's over and you're ready to really move on, that wound has to be open to the light. It has to get oxygen. It has to get sunlight. Otherwise, it's never going to fully heal. And the same is true with our hearts and our lives. As long as we're keeping ourselves stuck, feeling ashamed, feeling like we're not supposed to talk about things, feeling like it's a problem with us, then we don't fully heal. You tell a beautiful story of spiritual healing here. I think people can tell what an amazing storyteller you are. And in the book, there's just more and deeper and you, you've just got to read it. Hollywood to the Himalayas. It's interesting to me when you talk about being this young vegan, to me, you were already spiritual. And I think so often we don't recognize that. And then something incredible happens and particularly in this culture, it's not accepted. So I too had an eating disorder. Mine was binge eating. I tried so hard to be bulimic. I bought syrup of Ipecac. I just am not very good at throwing up. So I was dealing with that in and out of Overeaters Anonymous. And I was having dinner in a Walgreens coffee shop with my grandmother. And I was in the midst of a binge and they had all these giant pictures of different kinds of pies and things around the top edge, you know, really, really big Boston cream pie. And I was just looking at the pictures thinking, what am I going to have after I have my big dinner? And I heard a voice and it was a male voice that said, if you eat that, I'll never help you again. And I looked around to see where the jerk was who was getting in my business but there was no jerk. And anybody who's ever been in an eating binge knows that you just don't stop at 6.30 on a Tuesday night. You have to wait till Monday or the first of the month or something. But that was so powerful, it stopped. I went to a full day Overeaters Anonymous thing the next day, and that started me on both the recovery for my eating disorder, but also to a genuine spiritual life. I'd always been fascinated by the spiritual, but more fascinated by <laughs> the glitter. And I think for anybody that has this kind of spiritual avocation to read a book like yours and become immersed in it is just so powerful and so wonderful. 
I also want to ask you, we've got three minutes left in this segment, about forgiveness, because you talk early in the book about forgiving your father who abused you. And in the current climate, it seems that sexual abuse certainly is the unforgivable sin. You know, nobody's supposed to be forgiven for that ever, but you've done it. Can you tell us about that in three minutes? Sure. So it's actually really quite simple, not easy, not easy at all, but simple. Forgiving doesn't mean that what someone did is okay. And that's where so many of us are stuck with not forgiving. Because you're right, there are certain things that in the scheme of things in our worldview are unforgivable, are sins that must be punished, sins that must not be forgotten. The recipient of the abuse, in my case, me, forgiving, that does not absolve the perpetrator of the abuse. In my case, my biological father, not my dad, not the man who raised me as dad, but my biological father, it does not absolve him of the fruits that are going to come to him in his karmic package. The law of karma is in operation. People are going to get, whether it's through the justice system, through the courts, or whether it's through the law of karma, they're going to get what's coming to them. We forgive not because we are absolving them of a crime, but we forgive because we deserve to be free. Because regardless of what he did to me, in his ignorance, in his pain, in his anger, in his ego, in his confusion, doesn't mean that I should then voluntarily take my life my freedom, my joy, my bliss, and offer it up on the altar of his confusion, of his fear, of his history, of his problems. He hurt me enough the first few years of my life. Why would I then voluntarily give him the rest of my life? And when we don't forgive, that's what we're doing. So we forgive, not because it's okay, not because we are absolving them or condoning it, but simply because we recognize that regardless of what anyone does to us, we deserve to be free. That's our birthright. That is the core of who we are, and it's the highest, highest calling of a spiritual path is freedom. But if I voluntarily sacrifice my freedom, because of what someone else did to me, then I am missing out on the absolute highest goal of my life. And so we oh. forgive because we don't want to do that. Sadvi, I think you are missing out on absolutely nothing. <laughs> You're the most amazing person. I'm so happy we're having this conversation. More right after these messages from Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody. I just want to invite you to check out MainStreetVegan.net where we have some show notes and more information about our wonderful guest and her book, Hollywood to the Himalayas, A Journey of Healing and Transformation. And you can also find out about more that's going on in the world of Main Street Vegan. We do have a Main Street Vegan Academy course, training and certifying vegan lifestyle coaches and educators coming up in January. And there is a special discount for listeners uh, to the Main Street Vegan podcast. That is Kindness 20, Kindness with a capital K. And um, if you're having any other financial difficulties and it's just too difficult for you to take the course, but you really know that in your heart, this is something that you're supposed to be doing to spread good in the world, then just be in touch with me and we'll find a way uh, to get you into Main Street Vegan Academy. So let us continue with our wonderful conversation with Sadhvi Bhagavati Saraswati and, and her terrific and, and amazing memoir, so I wanted to ask you, just following through a little bit that we were talking about earlier, you had this incredible spiritual healing, not just of bulimia, but of, but of the 25 years that had gone before. And yet, you're a PhD in psychology, and psychology would generally not say, hmm, you walk into a river, you give it your pain, don't think so. What did you do with that? So... You know, it's funny that you say that because the day that it was suggested to me that I should give my pain to the river, it was suggested to me by one of India's most revered, and not just India's actually, the world's most revered and beloved spiritual masters who later became my guru. At that moment, I had only known him for a couple of days and didn't even know what a guru was. But I asked him about fear. And he said to me, you fear because you don't trust. 
And I told him my story of why I don't trust. I was abused, then I was abandoned, then this happened. And it's, it's a good story. And it had always gotten me a lot of sympathy. And he looked at me really matter-of-factly. And he said, are you going to take that to the grave? And I said, God, no, of course not. He said, so are you going to give it up on your deathbed? Maybe a week before you die? Maybe a month before you die? And I was like, God, no. I mean, I'm only 25 and, you know, I'll give it up sometime before that. And he said, you're waiting for someone to draw the line for you. You're waiting for someone to come in and to say, you can be done. He said, no one will. You can carry it to the grave, give it up a month before you die, or give it up tonight. And I was like, tonight? And he said, yes, we have this beautiful ceremony on the banks of the Ganga River. And after the ceremony, I want you to walk into the river, this mother goddess in the form of a river. And I want you to pull all of your pain, all of your anger, and I want you to offer it into the river. And I want you to forgive him. And I spent the next several hours, it's really embarrassing to admit 25 years later, but I spent the next several hours in really an academic arrogance. I used to keep a journal and I've got entries in my journal from that day that say things like, give it to the river. He thinks that I should just give it to the river as though it were simply an apple core. And that's so quaint and that's so sweet. But fortunately, I actually come from a place where we know about processes and we know about systems and we know about abreactive therapy and we know about you know all of the things that one needs to do to really heal from this kind of stuff. Unfortunately, I don't have to rely on a river to sweep away my pain. And sometime late afternoon, early evening, I had a moment for which I will always be deeply grateful. And it was a moment in which I said to myself, okay, look, we know this isn't going to work. Obviously, this isn't going to work. Rivers don't sweep away pain. And yet, it was told to you by a being who is literally worshipped as, as an embodiment of the divine in form. And by a being in whose presence you feel different, closer to your true self than you've ever felt in your life. And so I made a commitment that I simply would do it sincerely, that simply out of respect for this being who had suggested it, that I would try sincerely. Again, I knew it wasn't going to work, but I was going to stop joking about it. I was going to stop belittling it, and I was going to simply be respectfully sincere. And so I walked into the river, and with as much respectful sincerity as I could find, I dived into myself and pulled up all of the pain I could find, 
all of the anger, all of the images and the memories that caused me pain. And I must have stood there for hours. I have no idea how long it was. But I just kept giving and just kept giving and just kept giving. And by the time I walked out of the river, I felt free. But of course, the overly indoctrinated part of my brain said, well, you know, I mean, it's just going to come back, obviously. You didn't really just give it. Okay, let's enjoy the moment, but you girls still have problems. And then as, as funny as it is, but, you know, I've stopped trying to actually figure myself out and just learn to love myself with compassion. I, I kept trying to bring it back. I kept trying to prove to myself that I hadn't actually given it. And I would purposely try to remember moments, scenes that would have previously caused me to really suffer. To, you know, collapse in so many ways or that would have sent me to my head in a toilet. And they just didn't. I could still remember them. It wasn't like I had blocked out the memories. But it no longer had that emotional component to it. I no longer could decompensate, as we used to say, or dissociate. There was no place anymore to go within me. Just there I was. And I was able to sit with all of it without that decompensation or dissociation or engaging in addictive behaviors. And it took me a really long time, like almost all of these 25 years, to finally admit yeah, Mother Ganga took it. But of course, she took it because I gave it. And I think that's a really important part. It's not like the river reached inside me and wrested from me the pain that I wasn't ready to give. I, at that point, having had the spiritual experiences that I had been having for the last week or week and a half, that were so powerful that had led me to, to really trust I had given it. Again, not thinking it really could be given, but I had done it with sincerity. And I found that it could be given. And that the whole identity of abuse survivor, abandoned child, bulimic, that all of those identities they no longer fit. They just, they didn't feel like me anymore. I love that. That's, yeah. uh, I think when you have a cold and you get over it, you no longer have to walk around saying, well, I sneeze a lot. But with so many <laughs> yeah. of the psychological things, you know, they're just so easy to carry. And you've made that beautiful break, you and your guru and the river. So let's bring it more into now or through the 25 years. So help us understand spiritual growth, 
spiritual practice, and particularly what you seem to be uh, invested in more than anything else, if I'm reading it right, is seva, is, is the service to others. Tell us about all of that. Mm, beautiful. Yes. So the whole philosophy here is... We all have very deep personal spiritual practices of our meditation, of our prayers, of our chanting of our mantra or whatever, whatever else our spiritual practice might include. There's no equation, there's no one size fits all, but we all have our personal practice that's seated on the mat, on the cushion, your eyes are closed, your legs are probably crossed, practice. But that is seen as a practice that brings us into touch, into awareness with the truth of who we are, which is one. One with the creator by any name, any form, doesn't matter what our religious background may be, but that, that divine creator and also, therefore, with the divine creation. And so when we have that experience in our meditation of oneness, of the borders and the boundaries between me and the rest of the world melting, well, when you stand up from the cushion, your spiritual experiences are not supposed to go away. They stay with you. And so as we stand up from the cushion, from the mat, the most natural byproduct of that spiritual experience of oneness is service. Not service because we are the ones over here who have a lot and those are the ones over there who have little and we are the great humanitarians and they are the recipients. No. But to see all as self whether it's children dying of hunger, whether it's women dying in childbirth, whether it's children on the streets, whether it's polluted rivers, whether it's women being raped or attacked by wild animals because they don't have a toilet in their home and they've got to go into the jungle to go to the bathroom and they fall victim to all of this in the dark. Whatever it may be, whomever it may be, the spiritual goal is to see them as self. And so seva is a spiritual practice of can I, with my eyes open, with my hands in motion, with my legs in motion, still be in that meditative awareness of oneness. So in the same way that if my elbow itches, I scratch it. If my stomach growls, I feed it. In the same way, can I respond to the stomach growling of others, to the suffering of others? And if I can't, then it means that I need to spend some more time on the cushion, on the mat, having a deeper meditative experience. 
when someone is studying Eastern spiritual teachings and we're introduced to ideas that because the world is impermanent, we can see it as unreal. This is not where the focus should be. We're looking for knowledge of who we really are. So where does work in the world fit in with that? Mm, great. So this is one of the beautiful, and I really mean this, like I love this space of a seeming paradoxes, seeming opposites, but actually realizing that our goal, it's not about solving them. It's not about which is right. It's not even about a blend of, you know, the two into one. But it's actually about developing the spiritual ability to hold both truths simultaneously. So to hold the truth that everything is perfect, that everything is God, that there is nothing which is not God, and to feed the child who's on the street who's hungry, and to pick up the trash from the banks of the river. And to be able to hold both of those simultaneously, that here we are in a human form. Now, our highest truth, of course, is one with God. Again, by any name, any form, it doesn't matter. But that highest truth is a, an expanded consciousness an awareness and identification and connection with soul, with spirit, with God, with divinity, with love, with truth. But we've been given a human body. And the human body cries when other people are in pain. And the human body has a brain that innovates and creates. And if God is perfect, then why would God give us eyes that cry, hearts that melt, brains that innovate and solve and implement if we're not supposed to use that? Why would there be suffering and our response to suffering, which is to want to do something about it? So this beautiful spaciousness is to hold that the truth of who I am is spirit. And I have a human body that I need to honor. And this human body-mind package has got a whole karmic package that it's working out in this particular incarnation. I mean, that's why, according to Indian philosophy, that's why we have a body. We've taken birth with a body on earth because it means we've still got some karmic stuff to work out. And so we serve because in that service, A, it helps us honor our humanity, which is sacred and precious, given to us by God, created by God. And of course, if you think about it, if you ever give someone a gift, 
and they say someone you love and you give them a gift and they say to you, oh God, you know, that gift you gave me, you'd be so proud of me. I totally forgot I had it. I put it in the closet. I never look at it. You'd think, oh my God, you know, I, I gave you this gift out of love. I didn't want you to forget about it or hide it in a closet. And so the idea that we've been given these exquisite bodies and minds and hearts just to pretend that we don't have them, just to reach a state where we can fully ignore the human experience. Well, if, if we've been created in God's image and we would get hurt and insulted by that, then one can only imagine that God did not give us this just for us to be able to ignore it. And so we must, we must be meant to utilize this human body, to utilize this human life. And service is, is such a beautiful way because it actually serves both purposes. A, we get to be, as St. Francis of Assisi said so beautifully, instruments of thy peace. We get to be these vessels, these vehicles, these channels for the divine flow on earth which fulfills that aspect of our karmic package. But we also get to have a spiritual experience that becomes available to us, eyes open, which is in seeing ourselves in the other. Nobody's going to say, oh, you're spiritual, you should stop scratching your elbow when it itches. Or, oh, you're spiritual, you should stop feeding your stomach when it growls. So, if we're still going to scratch our own elbow and feed our own stomach, then service is that spiritual practice that helps us know your elbow is my elbow. Your stomach is my stomach. We are not separate. Beautiful. I, I remember reading my early 20s, um, a book by Rainer Johnson called The Imprisoned Splendor. And one of the lines was that something to the effect, you really get it when you can see any child as your own child. And I didn't have a child at that time, but even, even so, I knew that was, that was huge. And I, I believe that's what you're saying. So I just want to ask you, and now we did better than last time. Now we have four minutes left instead of three, um, about Indian culture and the concept that I hear a lot these days about cultural appropriation. I've discovered yoga and theosophy and Indian philosophy when I was 17. So the idea that all of a sudden, you know, 40, 50 years later, I'm appropriating it, it, it doesn't sit well with me. And yet I'm sure there's something to it. So can you give us your take? Well, I know that all of the Indian spiritual teachings, yoga, meditation, Ayurveda, all of that, which has been channeled, you can say, by the sages, the rishis, the saints, the yogis here in India, are part of a system, a dharma, that is referred to as Hinduism, 
But the word Hinduism is not actually something that was given by the Hindus. The Hindus refer to their religion, their system, as Sanatan Dharma, which literally means an eternal way of life, an eternal way of being. And it is available for all. There is nothing in it that says, in order to be part of Sanatan Dharma, you must worship like this, pray like that, speak this language, have brown skin, be born within these borders, have this passport. There's nothing like that. In fact, it's the opposite. Everything that is given is given for all. And that's emphasized so many times in so many ways. And so with regard to cultural appropriation, what I would say is as long as we are taking and implementing teachings in the way that they were meant, in the way that they were given, absolutely utilize them. There is nothing that says you must be a Hindu. You must be Indian. You must speak Sanskrit in order to do yoga, benefit from Ayurveda, meditate, cook with turmeric, right? I mean, where are you going to stop? So there's nothing that says that. The In just probably the one minute we have left, I would say, the dilemma comes when we pull things out of context, when we take something that isn't actually the fullness of the teaching, and we literally appropriate it to satisfy my ego, what I want, and we use it as a justification. So for example, people who refer to their own promiscuity as tantra would be a simple example of that. We have taken an idea and we have taken it out of context, out of the fullness of the teaching, and have simply used it to justify us continuing to engage in behavior that we want to engage in, but now giving it a spiritual stamp. So that would be the only place that I would be careful. Otherwise, do yoga. Meditate, benefit from Ayurveda, but benefit in the fullness of it. Yoga is not just asanas. Yoga is a system, an art, a science of union. Benefit from all of it. My goodness, this has been incredible. I said to everybody at the beginning that I went to a book launch and ended up with a spiritual experience. And uh, I'll bet at least some of you are thinking I turned on a podcast and ended up with a spiritual experience. The book is Hollywood to the Himalayas. And we have been blessed with conversation with Sadvi Bhagavati Saraswati. Bless you. Thank you. And to everybody listening, God bless and eat your veggies.
Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. If you're inspired by the teachings of Dr. Wayne Dyer, you will love the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast with Nadia Dela Cruz. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. My name is Nadia Dela Cruz, and I started the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast to explore spiritual topics like manifestation and meditation with guests who share their own stories of insight, awakening, and transformation. Listen now on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.